Welcome to The Reading Room. This is Room 22. On this programme, we talk to poet and author John Osborne. I first started to hear bands like The Smiths, Pulp and Blur, and I hadn't really realised that that was kind of poetry. We have a short story from Nikki Valentine. Anna noticed flickering movements in the dark corners of the room. There was something bad here. She was sure of it. We also have some flash fiction from Abigail Tartellin. Another nomination for our 101 books to read before you die and a very special announcement about The Reading Room Live. This is Karen Maitland and you're listening to The Reading Room on Siren 107.3. Norwich-based author and poet John Osborne enjoyed enormous success with his book Radiohead, Up and Down the Dial of British Radio, in which he explored his love of the wireless, a love that was cemented when he won a competition on Radio 1's John Peel show. This win has now inspired a one-man show, John Peel's Shed, which John is currently touring around the UK. Our producer Johnny Hall met up with John when he came to Lincoln and asked him what John Peel's Shed is all about. It is a uh, storytelling show where I spend an hour talking about music and about radio and its origins are in this box of records that I won in a competition on John Peel's Radio 1 show in 2002. Um, So I've had this box of records for years and I never really knew what to do with them and so I went along to my local community radio station uh, which is uh, Future Radio which is in Norwich where I live and I told them about this box of records that I had from John Peel's shed and they just thought that sounded a really exciting idea to do a show on radio where I just played the best tracks and gradually that has evolved through to doing it as a stage show. I understand the show kind of grew out originally from your book Radiohead which you released a few years ago. That was a a huge success for you, it ended up as Book of the Week on Radio 4, it was serialised in in the national press. For anyone who's not familiar with it, can you just outline what what Radiohead was all about? The idea of it is quite straightforward really, I just was looking uh, at my local bookshop and I realised that there weren't really any good books about radio. So I kind of, that frustrated me as a reader. But then as a writer, I just thought, well, I've always wanted to write a book. Maybe I could write a book about radio. So I had the idea of writing a book where um, I listened to a different radio station every day. From the big stations like um, Five Live and Radio 4 through to kind of community radio and local radio and that kind of thing and internet radio and so um, yeah every day I would just listen to a different radio station and write about what I heard on the radio that day and also about the background of each station and I interviewed some people who were quite important in radio like Mark Radcliffe and uh, Stuart McConey and uh, Nicholas Parsons like people I just li- listened to and enjoyed the- enjoy listening to on radio so yeah the-, the show that I'm doing now is some of the good stories that I found when writing Radiohead as well as some of the backstories that I was researching when I was doing my radio show. So it's quite a nice way to kind of combine the two. Both Radiohead and, and your second book, The News Agent's Window, they're both what I guess you might call narrative reality, kind of where you, you set yourself a task and then follow through doing it. And it's, it's kind of a genre that was popularised by people like Dave Gorman and Danny Wallace. So how does the process for writing those happen? I mean, how much of it can you plan? How much do you have to just kind of go with the flow? You have to plan quite a lot, um, but at the same time, yeah, go with the flow as well. If, if that makes sense, you have to do both. Um, but yeah, it was reading Are You Dave Gorman, which was his book where he was set the task of finding 54 people who were all called Dave Gorman. It was reading that, but it was quite an exciting book to read. And like, not at all for the wacky nature of it, but just for the very kind of tender moments he discovered when he was writing that. There's a section in that book where he interviews one Dave Gorman who... Um, says you can come around to my house on my lunch break and so he went on his lunch break and 
Every day, this guy called Dave Gorman plays a game of Scrabble with his wife when they're both on their lunch break. And he just showed them the compendium of scores that they keep. And it was just such a... Like, Dave Gorman writes about it so beautifully, about this just couple that is kind of this snapshot of this life. And that's kind of what radio and what the newsagent's window is as well. It's just a snapshot of people's lives. And the newsagent's window is an idea that I had just looking at a newsagent's window and just thinking, each one of these cards is a different story. All these objects that they're selling or services they're providing, they've all got backstories. And so there's someone that's kind of interested much more in the everyday life and the kind of small things that happen every day. That's something that I was really intrigued by. You portray yourself in your books as quite a sort of shy person. I mean, you, you're out here now doing this tour, standing in front of rooms full of strangers doing this one-man show. Do you get nervous before shows? Yeah, I do get nervous before shows. Poetry shows, I don't at all. There's a strange kind of, kind of contradiction in that I am quite nervous and, uh, and, and shy, kind of generally, but I feel very natural going on stage and performing. I think that's the story of quite a lot of performers. I, I think it's the sort of thing that I really enjoy. And the more you perform, the more confident you are off stage and in your daily life. But because quite a lot of the time in my books I've got a temp job, sometimes when you've got a temp job on minimum wage, you just kind of slump and you kind of forget that it's possible to have a personality and you don't have a confidence because you're just feeling a little bit bored and, and, and not too proud of what you're doing. And so... At the moment, I'm really proud of what I'm doing, so I'm kind of a bit more happy and, and, and yeah, outgoing in life. So when you're, you're putting together um, your work, I mean, how, how do you like to work? Is there a particular place you like to be? Is there a, a kind of environment you're comfortable in when you're writing? Yeah, it tends to be evenings and nighttime. Uh, I find that I'm most productive kind of starting about 9pm and maybe writing until kind of 1am, 2am, something like that. I'm quite lucky in that uh, I kind of have a, a lifestyle at the moment where I've, I've not had a job for like the last year, and so I, I can do that. Obviously, when I've had jobs, it doesn't really allow you to have that kind of lifestyle, so you have to work around it a little bit. But ideally, I'll kind of either like open a bottle of wine or maybe just kind of have some cups of tea and uh, sit at my desk and write until kind of I've written enough that I can go to bed. You mentioned about not having to have a job now. I mean, we have a lot of unpublished writers on the show, and that's kind of the holy grail, really, isn't it, to actually be in a position where you're making a living from, from your writing. But presumably that's, that's not an easy place to get to. No. Um, my first book came out in 2009, and um, while I was writing both Radiohead and The News Agent's Window, I was working in a hotel for The News Agent's Window, working in an office. I've just had lots of temp jobs and admin jobs and that kind of thing and and been writing in my spare time so it's only the last kind of 10 months that I've not had a job and been able to have this quite exciting lifestyle of being able to live the life that I've always wanted ever since I wanted to be a writer and I think that's I'm very aware that that's quite a privilege because not many people get to do that so I'm, I'm also making the most of it because who knows how long it'll last. What got you into writing in the first place? I've always liked writing stories and, and little... Like When I was very young, when I was kind of primary school age and secondary school, I used to have little notebooks where I used to kind of write out... Like I used to have my own football team, and I used to kind of write what happened to this football team, of which I was the manager. And that was just kind of like just kind of the weird fantasies of a kind of kid who spends too much time by himself, I guess. But um, after that, it was when I got into... Uh, listening to John Peel, kind of going back to John Peel's shed, it was listening to John Peel's Radio 1 show late at night that I first started to hear, hear bands like the Smiths and the Kinks and bands like that who just have these narratives in their songs. 
And I was fascinated by that. And Pulp as well. It was kind of the time of Britpop. So like Pulp and Blur, who just had these songs with just little stories within them. And I just loved that. And I hadn't really realised that that was kind of poetry at the time. But I guess it was really. And from there I went on and kind of read people like Simon Armitage and Philip Larkin. And short stories as well. People like Raymond Carver. And from being like as a 16-year-old not being very well read or not read any kind of a great of the great novels or anything like that. I just got into reading and writing and listening to music and the three of them have always played a big part in my life. I'm quite often listening to music with my headphones on if I'm writing and, 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 and that's just from those early days of listening to John Peel and, um, and getting into writing for the first time. Turning to your poetry and indeed taking in the, the music references, your, your new collection of poetry is called The New Blur Album. <laughs> yeah. Is there kind of a, a unifying theme to, to this collection? Sort of, it's about um, a slight fear of getting a bit older and um, how things used to be better in the old days. Like certainly when I was first finding the poems to put together, there was about five poems that all were pretty much like, remember when people used to write letters <laughs> and that kind, of, that kind of thing. There's a poem in there called Pages from Seafax, which is kind of the one that I chose to kind of represent that kind of, just like ten years ago, how things were different before computers took over and that kind of thing. Not, not really being a, a technophobe, but like, um, I, I, I prefer to write by hand and on a computer and, and, and listen to CDs and records than an iPod and that kind of thing. So it's not really, like, hopefully it's not kind of too anarchy or, or, or weird, it's just how things were slightly better. And it's called the New Blur album just because I thought that was quite a funny title. And luckily my publisher is a massive Blur fan and he thought it was quite a good title as well. Maybe it'll confuse people on the internet and they'll buy it by mistake, <laughs> hopefully anyway. There is quite a lot of humour in, in your poetry and it does seem to me at the moment there's kind of a trend for poetry and comedy to converge. You've got people like you know, Luke Rice and, and certainly Tim Key is probably the most obvious uh, example. Do you think there's a lot of common ground between stand-up comedy and performance poetry? Yeah, I do. I think that certainly all of the poets I know who perform are very much influenced by stand-up comedy. But in terms of audiences, I think audiences get a lot out of going to poetry gigs. Certainly that's the best feedback that you get as someone who performs poetry. People coming up to you saying, oh, I thought that would be rubbish. And uh, and sometimes poetry has got something more substantial and more exciting than just a stand-up comedian. I think, I think stand-up comedy is going through quite a strange time at the moment. It's got so big that people are starting to get a little bit bored of it, and that's why poetry is managing to thrive in this kind of like little underground that that's created. I've been doing poetry gigs for five or six years now, and certainly this is a really exciting time. I think, I think the success of Tim Key is a really exciting and encouraging thing because he's so funny, and some of his poems are, are genuinely kind of moving as well in an odd way. They're beautiful. Like, he's got some that are just kind of 20 seconds long that just kind of create this whole world that kind of like tear your heart out so um, yeah I think people like Luke Wright and, uh, and Tim Key uh, uh, certainly they both had excellent Edinburgh's as well this year and, and poetry is being very well represented at the moment So when this tour is all done and dusted what's, what's next for you? I'm writing a new book at the moment which uh, it took me quite a long time to get a new book deal. It's a very hard time to get a book deal at the moment, but then a couple of months ago I got offered a chance to write a book about seasides. So that's what I'm doing now. I've done a little bit of it. I've made a start. And the idea of the book is that it's about the eccentricities and secrets 
of seasides and of coastal towns and the people who live there and, and what really goes on in seaside towns that kind of the Sunday supplements and Wikipedia wouldn't otherwise tell you. So it's something I'm really excited at the moment, certainly after having this period of kind of this time last year when I just was working for an insurance company and had no like no money. I was living in a flat that was just horrible and um, and I couldn't get anywhere with either my writing or my performing. Or, and so um, I'm really enjoying the fact that at the moment I get to work on another book and um, hopefully it'll be a good one and, and it will there will be more to follow. John Osborne is currently touring the UK with his show John Peel Shed. Check out the website johnpeelshed.com for full list of dates. And his latest collection of poetry, the new Blur album, is available now from nastylittlepress.org. When we met John, he very kindly recorded one of these poems for us. This is Talking to Machines. You have one message. Message one. I don't like talking to these machines. I always say the wrong thing and pause and err and stutter too much. Normally I don't bother to leave a message, but I thought I'd call to say how good it was to see you the other morning. And I'm sorry I couldn't stick around for longer. I just wanted to tell you that I can't remember the last time I was in a good mood the way I was for the rest of Thursday. Two people at work commented on how I was chatty and smiling and I thought, well, if this is the kind of person I am after just 45 minutes with you, drinking coffee while you're telling me about your job, then what would I be like if... I don't like talking to these machines. And I know everyone says that, but for me, I just find it really hard. I hope you call back. But I know you once said you always delete your voicemails without even listening to them. And maybe that's what's given me the confidence to leave this, knowing you'll probably never hear it. Or that maybe you'll listen, then press delete, and we can both pretend it never happened. Message deleted. We arranged again to meet and as I walked off down the street I swear that I felt ten feet tall Was I dizzy from the wine or maybe I just missed the signs Cause now you won't return my calls On the 12th of May, Siren FM will broadcast The Reading Room Live a two-hour live radio broadcast from the Lincoln Performing Arts Centre. We'll have spoken word performances from Andrew Golding, Abigail Tartellin and Jodie Orton. Jamie Mackay will bring us a special edition of The Musings of a Muddled Mind and there'll also be some 101 books to read before you die entries too. But here's the big news. This year, we're hosting a special guest. The author, comedian and actor, Robert Llewellyn, will be joining me for an on-stage interview followed by a reading from his new science fiction book, News from Gardenia. Amongst other things, we'll be talking to Robert about his writing, publishing and the internet, as well as his TV work and, of course, Red Dwarf. So that's Robert Llewellyn, our special guest for this year's Reading Room Live on Saturday the 12th of May. We're live on air from 7.30. Tickets are £5 and available now from the LPAC box office or online from lpac.co.uk or follow the links from sirenonline.co.uk. Hi, I'm Richard Herring, and you're listening to The Reading Room on Siren 107.3 FM. Now it's time for our tea break story. And late last year, we interviewed Nikki Valentine, author of The Haunted, and we also recorded this short story called The Bothy. 
The fire was glowing in the grate, its flames licking the air and making shadows dance. Anna noticed flickering movements in the dark corners of the room as she tried to settle into the nest they'd made with their sleeping bags and blankets on the floor. This place made her uneasy. Something about it brought to mind those moments in horror movies where someone goes down the cellar or finds himself in the woods alone. There was something bad here. She was sure of it. She had always had a sense about these things. Daniel was pouring milk into mugs of hot chocolate. He turned to smile at Anna. The fire made his face glow red and he looked demonic. She stared at him for a moment, then made herself remember that this was Daniel, who would never hurt her, not something evil. He brought the drinks over and, away from the fire, he looked like himself again, not frightening at all. We should tell ghost stories, he said, around the campfire, what ho? No, Anna said quickly, I don't want to do that. But Daniel grinned and said, don't worry, I'll start. Anna sipped her drink and tried not to get angry. This was so typical of Daniel. So often he would ignore what she wanted and do what the hell he liked, like coming here. He'd been so determined to camp out rough in a bothy, an old shepherd's hut deep in the Scottish Highlands. Daniel had stayed in bothies when he was younger, on outward bound trips. On the same trips, though, he'd slept on hillsides in bin liners. None of that was particularly romantic. None of it was anything Anna wanted to reenact. Daniel poked the fire. Anna felt very cold. It was a dark and windy night, he said. Oh, please, what a cliché. She was trying to put Daniel off, but he ignored her. It was a cold and rainy night, he said. He came back and climbed under the covers with her. At a girls' boarding school in the north of England, the girls were getting ready for bed when they saw lights in the window. Anna shivered. She clung to the heat from her mug. She refused to be scared by a stupid story. The lights were strange. At first, the girls thought they were headlights of a car in the distance, but they realised, after a while, that it couldn't be that. They were moving in the wrong way. Instead of drifting up and down the way they would have floated over hills, they were moving up, down, left, right, in perfect curves and spirals, always the same distance from one another. The girls speculated. Was it some kind of plane or helicopter? They crowded the window. They misted up the glass with their breath, standing close and staring at the lights in the distance. Daniel stopped then. He looked right into Anna's eyes in a way that unsettled her. She put her drink a safe distance away and tuttered. They were so close to the glass. He was whispering now, leaning in close towards her, their noses almost touching. When one of the girls suddenly screamed, she jumped back from the glass. They're not lights in the distance, she told them breathlessly. They're not lights at all, not in the distance. Eyes, just the other side of the glass. Despite Anna's best efforts, the twist made her heart beat faster. She half-heartedly slapped him. Heard that one before, she said. She was acting offhand, but the truth was, she hadn't heard that story. Your turn, Daniel said, tucking himself in closer to her under the quilt. I don't know any ghost stories, she said. She refused to be drawn into this game. You must know ghost stories. Daniel kissed her, then pulled back. You're scared, he said. You believe in ghosts. Of course not. She tried to sound light-hearted, but could hear the strain on her voice. She kissed Daniel again to shut him up. You do, though, he said, 
moving back and examining her face. I can tell. He was getting up. Where are you going? Anna said. Just for a wee love. He turned and smiled at her, pulling on his coat and picking up their only torch. Don't let the bugs bite. He winked and left the hut. It felt cold in the bothy now he'd gone, despite the fire. Anna kept staring at the window and into the corners and the shadows. She tried to stop. What was she expecting to see? The lights that Daniel had described? Or something else? Like the dog that used to visit her when she was a little girl. She hadn't liked to be left alone in that back bedroom at her grandma's house. She'd screamed and cried. She didn't remember it that well, but she remembered the gnashing of teeth and the claws, the fear that she'd felt when her mum closed the door. She remembered her mother's voice, so matter-of-fact, when she came back into the room. There's nothing here, love. Just your imagination. And then the thud as the door closed again, and whining bark of the animal on its way back. All of a sudden, she wanted to rush after Daniel so she wasn't on her own. She closed her eyes. When Anna opened her eyes again, she could see lights in the window. They were moving around as she watched. Not in quite the same way Daniel had described. They were more random than that. She laughed. What an idiot her boyfriend could be. Knock it off, Daniel, she said. The lights in the window kept moving, though. She stood up, giggling, and walked over. She banged on the glass. Stupid idiot, she said, but the lights kept moving. She pressed her nose to the glass but couldn't make out Daniel's face or his arms or legs. She couldn't see him at all, just the lights. She banged on the window again and was about to sit down when she noticed the mist from her breath on the glass. This small detail brought back the unsettled feeling she'd had at the end of Daniel's story. She was clenching her fists and that was when it struck her. They only had one torch. She had no idea how Daniel could be making two lights dance in the window. Daniel, it's not funny anymore. Anna ran towards the door. She pulled it open and stared out. She looked around. She couldn't see anyone. No lights, no boyfriend. Just the lock to one side and the woods to the other. Somewhere in the distance there was a bleak animal sound. She recognised it straight away. It was a dog. Not a wolf or a fox or a woodland animal, but a dog. Not just any dog, either. She heard the door of the bothy creak behind her and remembered her mother closing the door at Grandma's house. She could smell tooth and claw and shaggy coat. She could smell her own fear. She would not wait for the thing to come. She would not stand there and let it find her like she had when she was three. Anna let the bothy door swing in the wind and ran, coatless and barefoot, into the wood. Her feet tore on the rough ground and she stubbed her toes but she ran and ran all the way into the dark. The Reading Room's 101 Books to Read Before You Die Hello, this is Ellie Griffiths and the book I would recommend is The Woman in White by Wilkie Collins. It's just one of the greatest books ever. I think it has the best villain ever, Count Fosco. And one of the best heroines, Marion Halcombe, who is one of the first non-glamorous heroines, I think, in literature. And the most fantastic plot. It has ghosts, it has legacies. And as I say, it has a fantastic Italian villain. What more could you want? 
Our thanks to Ellie Griffiths, and we'll be having a full interview with Ellie next month discussing her new book, the brilliantly titled A Room Full of Bones. And now it's time to hear from one of the stars of this year's Reading Room Live, Abigail Tartellin, with some flash fiction. Old heartache. I used to love you. You used to be a part of reality, my every day, as commonplace as the breakfast bowl with the spoon sitting in oat-dirtied soy milk, as essential as a parent, your advice, care and attention completely necessary and taken for granted. I used to love you, the way you moved your neat and nimble body, a pair of blue trousers, the sound that shame made in your skull, a wet, tearful choke. I used to know where you kept your dirty mags, the exact locations of the biro stains on your jeans, the approximate contents of your mum's fridge on any given day. I used to love you. And years later, I sort of still do. Except I don't. It's just a memory of love now, like a shadow on a lung on an x-ray, or the shape of someone's head left indented in a pillow, or the slight sink in the ground over old graves. It's the residual tenderness of an old wound, how the head has moved on, but the heart still aches with the pain of remembered love lost. Thanks for listening to The Reading Room. Next month, The Reading Room Book Group will be discussing The Woman Who Went to Bed for a Year by Sue Townsend, and we'll be talking to crime author Ellie Griffiths. See you then. Listener.